Well, on that note, uh, we have some good news that Betsy wanted us to relay to you this morning. And that's, as you know, the uh, Adventure Weekers um, collect uh, offering all week long. They bring pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, and dollar bills to give to our missionaries. And they raised this past week $1,110.73 to go to uh, the mission in India. So praise the Lord for that. That's really great news. In other news... There was a Supreme Court decision this week. We're not going to give our uh, sermon to paying attention to that, but we do need to say something. Uh, Others will give better, more educated insight and commentary on the political ramifications and the legal ramifications of uh, the fallout of that decision in days and weeks ahead. I just want to make two quick comments. It didn't seem appropriate to say nothing. Uh, It's also not appropriate to make it the focus of our message this morning. Uh, the first thing is that it is the decision of the Supreme Court, five justices, uh, majority on the Supreme Court. It's a theological departure. It's an attempt to define an institution that God created and only has the right to define. What follows, we know what follows when that happens. When we depart from the ways, the plans, and the design of God, what always follows is pain. What always follows is disappointment. What always follows is heartbreak. What always follows is unfulfilled expectations and heartache. Men, women, and children will be feeling pain, right? And and, and this has always been true. The gospel of the sexual revolution is a false gospel. It cannot deliver on its promises. It never intended to. This is just the latest in a stage or, or a series of the developments, the unfolding of the sexual revolution. But what I want to say is that the fact that we know this to be true is an evangelistic advantage, We know where things are going. We know the lies that are being consumed and we know that people will be hurt. It's an evangelistic advantage for us to know that in the lives of individuals whom we know and love, family members, friends, colleagues, coworkers, I have a cousin to be planning a wedding shortly now. to, to, To be looking with the eyes of Jesus to smell like Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus who came to seek and save those who were lost. To love them, to express compassion, to tell the truth winsomely and honestly, but to be there to help them pick up the pieces, more so than Twitter warfare campaigns or Facebook drive-bys. To look for the people that Jesus looked for. It's an advantage. It's an evangelistic advantage to know that the hopes that seem so eagerly fulfilled will disappoint. The other thing that I want to say is that while it seems that socially, politically, culturally, that perhaps marriage suffered a setback in its understanding on Friday, it did not suffer a defeat. We didn't define it. We cannot redefine it no matter how hard we try. I came across these uh, words from a Christian cultural analyst, one of his postings uh, responding to this on Friday. I thought it was very helpful, so I thought I'd share it with you. He says, the long-term prospects for marriage are good. Marriage is resilient, and the sexual revolution always disappoints. It's true that these are dark days for the culture of marriage, but dark days are exactly what our gospel is for. No day was darker than the day the Son of God died in Palestine on a criminal's cross. We are here because that dark day was not the end of the story. And because it wasn't the end then, it will never be the end now. Good words. So what do we do in cultural moments like these? It can be tempting to, you know, panic or throw your hands up. 
I think the answer is you persevere. Not naively, not head in the sand, but you persevere in the faithfulness that you are already seeking by God's grace to cultivate. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We are going to preach the passage this morning that God has appointed for us to pass since before any of us walk the earth. And we're gonna ask him to give us the word that we need to hear from him today. So we'll be in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and uh, turn there. If you need a Bible, we have ushers in the back that would be delighted to give you one. Just stick your hand up. It's a gi- our gift to you. Go ahead and take that. Uh, we'll be there in just a minute. Um, There's a passage about Jesus exposing religious formalism, the tendency to rely on our own externals. True story. In 1998, I was one year out of college and I knew that I was going to seminary to train for, for ministry uh, preparation. During that year, I came on staff at my home church full-time, uh, working in youth ministry in particular to gain some on-the-ground, front-lines uh, ministry experience. It was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful year. I was so thankful for the training that I, that I received uh, during that time. Um, that summer, before I left to go to seminary, Um, My wife, who was not my wife at the time, but was soon to be, uh, my wife and I and several others led a group of senior hires on a short-term missions trip to work with a a, a team that we were partnering with in a little Baptist church uh, outside of London, England. It was uh, blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. It was a wonderful uh, week and a half or so of ministry. We helped rebuild the stage in their sanctuary. We had opportunities to share the gospel Uh, It was just a really neat time. While we were there, I was asked by the pastor to preach uh, the two Sundays that we were there. He hadn't had a break in years. I don't know why he trusted me with that, but anyway, he did. Um, And I was, was, I hadn't done a lot of preaching then. I was thrilled with the opportunity. I poured myself into preparing and planning and thinking. I have no idea what I preached. I don't don't even remember it at all, which is probably good. but I was so eager to have this opportunity. I remember that after the second Sunday of preaching, there was a couple in the church that came up to me. And what they said, they meant as a compliment. They said something to the effect that, wow, that was so uh, wise or eloquent. And, and, you know, it was really just so, 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 so beyond our grasp that we just, we didn't follow much of what you were saying. Now, they, they, they did not mean that as a smackdown, though I should have taken it that way. I, I must tell you that to my shame, I took it as a compliment. See, they saw, this couple saw me participating in the religious form of preaching. And the way they made their comment and the way that I responded to it is I've reflected on it in the days since then. I wanted to appear wise more than I wanted to be wise. I had a heart that craved people coming up to me and seeing my religious form of worship and saying, or wanting them to say, great preacher, more than I wanted to hear them say, great savior. That's a scary place to be. And the pitfalls of religious formalism, the externals of what it is that I'm doing, these religious good deeds, have made this passage in Mark chapter 11 surgical for me in the last couple of weeks. I find that heart is sometimes still there. 
that tendency to rely on forms and externals is easy to slide into. And I would, I would dare say that this is not a passage that is simply important for me. If you are here this morning attending a religious service of worship, we're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable to the self-deception that because we're doing good religious activities, we're okay. Activities like preaching, attending worship, serving all week long in Adventure Week. Is it possible that we might pursue those activities in a way that we assume we're accumulating notches in the belt rather than attending to the desperation of our own hearts? That's the question for us this morning. What matters more, appearing righteous by the things that we do or being righteous by faith in Jesus Christ? And they're two totally different answers. We, of course, want to be careful. We believe, we understand that those who are justified by faith will do many religious activities. And on the outer layer, on the externals, the person who is justified by faith and the person who we will call the formalist or the externalist look very similar. But here's the point. When the things they're doing externally look very similar, they're actually doing very different things internally aren't they? And that is the, those are the, the depths of the heart that we need to probe this morning. I think that's what Jesus was driving at in Mark chapter 11, and it's what he's driving at today. He has always insisted, as we've made our way through the gospel of Mark, that it is the heart and not the externals that make one clean or unclean. So let's pray and then uh, dive in together asking the Lord's help with our time. Father, we admit that simply by being people who practice religious activities, that we're vulnerable to placing our hope in them more than placing our hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would use this revelation, this teaching of Jesus, Lord, to shine the light of your truth in our hearts, to uh, bust apart any disillusionment that we might have of taking comfort in our own righteousness and our own religious doings. I pray that we would do our religious activities from a heart and a posture of faith and dependence, not from a mindset that we're somehow doing you a favor. So would you help us, Lord, to see clearly, ap- apply clearly, and repent appropriately? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 11, a fairly long passage, verses 1 through 25. I'm just going to summarize the first 10 verses. They record the triumphal entry of Jesus, the uh, Palm Sunday uh, ceremony of Jesus moving towards Jerusalem, and and, and then try to get very quickly to what I think is the core of our passage. But, But it is worth pointing out that Jesus is now on the sort of the, the climactic um, moment of his journey towards Jerusalem. He's been saying for a while now that he's got to go to Jerusalem and he's got to be crucified and handed over to the scribes and chief priests and be killed and rise on the third day. So there's a climactic clash that is coming and Jesus is making his final march on Jerusalem. It's an interesting march because he's going for a definitive moment and yet here he is riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. At the same time, people are waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, right? The kingdom of David is coming. So the people are expecting a kind of coronation, and that is what they will find, just not the way they were looking for it. Jesus will be in Jerusalem to be lifted up, but not in the way that anybody thought. There's an irony, a humble majesty about Jesus 
in this moment. We should mention, thinking about, and we preached this recently in our Easter season, um, we, we should be careful to remember that, that an enthusiastic response to Jesus is not necessarily the same as faith and discipleship, right? Um, people are waving palm branches, and a lot of people were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, so we can't simplistically say that everybody who was here waving palm branches was shouting crucify a few days later, but it certainly is possible. The tide in Jerusalem turns quickly on Jesus. And if nothing else, we remember from the parable of the soils in Mark chapter four, that there was a soil that received the seed and sprung up quickly with joy, only to wither in time because it had no depth of root. We need to take care that our hearts do not fall into that same trap. Perhaps formalism could deceive us into thinking we have roots where we don't. Verse 11, we'll begin to put the central characters in our passage into play. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. It's interesting, we have been expecting, right, that Mark's been writing and presenting and the palm branches and the chanting. We're expecting a climax, a confrontation, a coronation. Jesus walks in, it's late, sees nothing and leaves a little bit anticlimactic and pushes the drama back to the next day. But what it does is it begins to introduce the main characters in the rest of our passage. Those characters are three. Jesus and the temple are already clear to us. And sandwiched around those is gonna be this character of a fig tree. The fig tree is gonna be something that Jesus uses as an object lesson before he goes into the temple and after he leaves the temple to talk about the hollow religiosity that is taking place at the temple. Let's pick that up in verse 12. It's an interesting incident. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So they're going back to the temple now and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. It's an interesting statement, right? That Jesus curses this fig tree when we're told that it was not the season for figs. Kind of look, I mean, it kind of looks bad for Jesus in some ways, right? I mean, is he just, is he just kind of suffocating under the weight of what he's about to do? And so he just has to lash out at something and the fig tree takes the blunt of his uh, pent up anxiety. I did not know the answer to this question when I started work. I've always wondered about this. Um, doing a little research, evidently the, uh, what, what makes this click here is the phenomena of Middle Eastern fig trees. Evidently in uh, Middle Eastern fig tree life, uh, when, when they produce leaves, that's not the time for the producing of figs, but when a fig tree is in leaf, it is producing um, little fruit called nodules, uh, smaller than, than figs, but edible, evidently somewhat tasty, and ancient Middle Eastern travelers would pluck them as they walked by and they would eat them, they were nutritious. And point being, when Jesus sees the fig tree in leaf, he has the right to expect, not that figs are present, but that nodules will be, that there will be something to eat on this tree. And so Jesus looks at the tree from a distance, he sees that it's in leaf, he anticipates that there will be something to eat, upon closer inspection there is nothing, what's the point? Here is a tree that appears to be fruitful, but is not. A tree that appears to be producing life, or should be, and is not. This tree is diseased, there is something wrong with it. It looks one way, but it is not what it was made to be upon closer inspection. 
And this is the same thing that Jesus is about to say about the temple, right? In the very next scene, he's gonna walk into the temple and he's going to see the court of the Gentiles filled with religious activity, religious commercialism, transactions. There's a lot of stuff going on. And Jesus is going to say the activity in the temple is as hollow as that tree that appears to be producing fruit when it has none. It's an object lesson. It is a parable, right? Designed to prime the disciples' attention and our attention to the dangers of of religious formalism. So let's look at verses 15 to 19. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out from the city. So he walks in, if you walk into the temple of Jesus at this point in time, what you would walk into would be known as the court of the Gentiles. It's the biggest part. Everybody walks through. That's, that's the way, entryway of access. Only, Gentiles can only go in here. And it's where all this religious transacting is taking place. Changing money, uh, selling animals for sacrifice, evidently quite an enterprise. And Jesus begins to drive out the money changers and the sellers. Why? It seems that he is saying that the religious activity and commercialism that is taking place in the temple on that day is blocking true worship from occurring. So there's a lot of religious transaction happening, but what's not happening specifically is prayer. Jesus says that this house was to be called a house of prayer for all nations. Rather than driving the Gentiles out, he's inviting them in. This is a place for religion of the heart, for true worship of the Lord. And your religious activity and commercialism is preventing that from happening. So he drives them out. More than that, more than than condemning uh, religious hypocrisy and and, and external religious activity, I think Jesus is also saying here, I've come to fulfill the ministry of the temple. In other words, the the old covenant is coming to a close. The new covenant is about to be inaugurated He's going to grant not only Jews, but also Gentiles access to God through him. Not the ministrations of the temple anymore. They were good in their time, but they've been pointing forward to this moment that has now come. The temple has always indicated that, and Jesus is specifically saying, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the only way. And so when he does that, he throws down the gauntlet in the face of these religious leaders. They have to make a choice. He doesn't give them a lot of alternatives. The choices are pretty simple. Crown me or kill me. They make their choice. The options remain the same for us today. How will we respond to Jesus? He doesn't give us a lot of alternatives. You can coronate him as the Lord of your life, or you can try to kill him. And that's about all that he offers. I don't want us to drive past this scene, though, and just think, ooh, there goes those religious hypocrites again, so bad, for, so bad for them and kind of move on about our business. I want us to, to think and reflect in, in ways, about ways in which this same kind of formalist tendency might seep into our hearts. We already recognize that from Jesus' statement here that prayerlessness is a dangerous giveaway. It's a dangerous sign 
of hollow religion, right? Are you, are you busy with religious activity and find that there's no place for prayer? And I don't just mean laundry list prayer, but dependent, humble, relationship building prayer, faith building prayer in your life. With the Lord, I mean, full of religious activity, but prayer is going by the wayside. Jesus says there's a deadly delusion of self-righteousness when we delude ourselves into thinking that we're okay before God because we're busy, but we're not dependent on him in humble prayer. Why is formalism so appealing to us? Why is it still so appealing? I think maybe there's a couple of reasons. On the one hand, I think it seems, at least initially, a little bit easier to manage. Because I can say, there's something specific, there's something tangible I can point to, right, about in terms of my doing the will of God. I'm doing my Bible reading, I'm attending worship. I'm working at Adventure Week. Something I can point to. It seems a little bit more manageable. And I can indicate or suggest to myself, perhaps others, that I'm doing the will of God. I also think in other ways it appeals to us because it seems less scary. Here's what I mean by that. If I'm busying myself with activities for who knows whatever reasons, hiding from the, from the past, hiding from fears about the future, whatever, whatever it is, Right? If, I, if I'm busy with activity, I don't have to come into contact with the depths of sin that are in my own heart. That's scary to face. To face that honestly, that's scary because it produces a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. The good news is that that drives us to the only true Savior, which is Jesus, but that can be a scary thing to face. And perhaps sometimes we try to paper over that frightening reality with a sense that I'm doing the right stuff, Well, true heart religion, on the other hand, is not under my control and can be scary as a result, right? Because I am having to come in contact with that reality and awareness of how much I need Jesus. The problem with religious formalism, of course, is that the gap between God and sinners is so vast that no amount of religious activity can ever bridge it. If you're wondering about that, ask an adventure weeker. They learned that lesson this week. This is why, by by the way, this is why Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples when he's talking about the vine and the branches, that's why he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't mean that you can't do anything whatsoever, right? You're, You're static, you're inert, you're limp, you can't move. He means apart from being a branch that abides in me, the vine, you can do nothing of ultimate kingdom significance. You can strive and spin your wheels and do a lot of stuff But if you're not abiding in me, it doesn't count with ultimate kingdom uh, significance. So have you gotten to the point in your life where you feel like your religious industry is just kind of going through the motions? Feel familiar in your walk with the Lord? Lost your sense of wonder over who he is? Lost an appreciation for the depths of your own depravity? grown cavalier to the massive privilege you have of having a Bible in every room and on every digital device you own. How about this one? Ever slip into the pattern of going through the motions, say if you're a Bible teacher who teaches the same course semester in, semester out, walk into class, think, I got this one. 
put this on autopilot today. Proclaim truths that bounce off the walls of your own heart because you're just doing your duty. We all have much to take heed of here. The good news is that our passage, Mark chapter 11 this morning, is pointing us to the cure. But in order to understand the excellencies of Christ, we have to have a sober evaluation of the deadliness of our own sin. And so we need to focus in on this connection between Jesus and the temple. What's he doing here? What is the problem? What was lost in our sin? What is the temple trying to, how is that, in what way is that trying to bridge a gap? And in what way is Jesus saying even that falls short in some sense? I think the point here is to show us how helpless we are. And in order to understand the ministry and the meaning of the temple, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to cite my sources and give credit where credit is due. So this next little bit here, I am, I am following with much appreciation and indebtedness some things that were pointed out to me by Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, treating this, own, uh, this passage as well. He points out that in Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden is very much like a temple kind of sanctuary, right? In the midst dwells God with his priests, in a sense, Adam and Eve tending to the ministry and the needs of the garden. They're in perfect fellowship with him. They have relationship. They have enjoyment with him. When they disobey, not only does God bring a curse on them, but according to the passage that is on the screen, he drives them out of the Garden of Eden, places a cherubim at the gate with a flaming sword that blocks the access and the ability of anyone ever to return. We have lost in our sin the ability to be in the presence of God. And Keller calls this sword the sword of divine justice or the sword of eternal justice. In other words, for anyone ever to get back into the presence of God, to get back into fellowship with God, they have to go under that sword to get there and none can survive that. What we've lost in our sin is stunning. We cannot come back. And we have an accuser who celebrates that truth, who screams in testimony against us, don't let them back in. Throw the book at them. They can't come back. And he's right. We can't. Because we cannot get under that sword. So the temple and the establishment first of the tabernacle and then later the temple, God is doing a work of grace. There's judgment in it because the barriers right around the Holy of Holies and between God and the people and can't get too close and only the high priest goes in once a year and under the covering of a blood sacrifice. That's mercy. But it's also a sign that things haven't been permanently dealt with because we have to do it again and again and again and again and again. So Jesus shows up in our passage. He says, I'm here to fulfill the ministry of the temple. I will be the great high priest and the sacrifice. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who takes away the sin of the world. Destroy this temple, Jesus says, and in three days I will build it. When he dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, symbolizing this inauguration of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the temple ministry in his own person. We have an accuser but we have an advocate as well. And he pleads your case and mine on the merits of his righteousness, not ours. And he sacrifices himself to go underneath the sword of divine judgment so that you and I 
may not only be forgiven, but be admitted back into our Heavenly Father's presence. Look at this passage in Revelation 5. We'll put on the screen here. It's an amazing picture. There is a description of the heavenly throne room and lots of things are going on there. Living creatures, a lion, a lamb. Central to the picture in Revelation chapter five as underlined on the screen is the lamb standing as though it had been slain. The picture of the one whom we will worship and celebrate around the throne in heaven There's a slain lamb on the throne. Why is he slain? Because he went under the sword. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Advance it to the next slide, please. And the song that they sing is, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is in fulfillment of Mark chapter 11, a house of prayer for all nations, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people granted access back into the presence of God the Father because of the lamb who was slain. The next slide shows us uh, 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 an excerpt from Revelation 21. I just want to zero in on verse three, which is right in the middle of that, uh, and reads this fulfillment of this promise. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. To be with God, to dwell with God is a staggering gift. It is what we lost and could not get back to. And we have access because of the lamb who underwent the sword. See, in fulfilling the ministry of the temple and doing all of this, Jesus is making the impossible possible. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler and he's told to sell all his possessions and come back and follow Jesus and he's not able to do it and the disciples ask about it and Jesus says it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and the disciples ask the question, then if this is true, then who can be saved? What does Jesus say? It's man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Jesus here is doing the impossible possible. He is making the defiled, the guilty, the corrupt, the condemned, cleansed from the inside out in such a way that on the basis of his sacrifice, they can go back into his presence. And, and again, this is not something that he's merely doing to save you, right? Record expunged and move on, but to delight in you. Look at this passage from Zephaniah 3. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How can it be? He's going to sing over you? He's going to exult over me? He's going to rejoice over us? He knows every vile deed. Every faithless thought, every idolatrous act, and he's not just saving, but delighting in the redemption of his enemies. Well, if the impossible is what it takes, then we are truly helpless. 
And if we understand the depth of our own helplessness and that he not only saves but delights in the redemption of his enemies, then we're beginning to restore a little bit of sobriety about the depth of our sin and a little bit of the awe over the person of Jesus. When those things begin to get in step, that will completely change the way that you and I carry out our Christian service, won't it? Back to Mark 11, verses 20 to 25. We get a picture here, right? In in, in leaving the temple now, a picture of what this true heart religion looks like as contrasted with what has been formalized. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think Jesus gives us three indicators here of what the cleansed heart looks like. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Have faith in God, he says. That's, a, that's something that, that is birthed in a cleansed heart. Why? Because it's not looking to my own externals. It's not trusting in my system of self-management. It's trusting in God's system of deliverance. When I do that, when I have faith in God, I'm able to tap into not my power, but his power to do the impossible, like getting me past that sword. He commends prayer, the thing that wasn't happening at the temple, right? What does prayer do? Prayer is an expression of dependence in the Lord. It is a manifestation of trust in him and not in myself. And by the way, when he talks about this moving this mountain into the sea, I think that what Jesus is saying here is that if you can trust God to do the impossible, like getting you past that sword of divine judgment, then trusting him to do something like tossing a mountain into the sea, which otherwise seems impossible as well, is child's play for him. If he can get you past the sword, moving a mountain, nothing. Piece of cake. And then he says, when you're praying, when you stand praying, forgive if you recognize that you have something against someone else. Well, that begins to look like Jesus as well, right? Jesus is going to the temple to lay down himself in sacrificial offering whereby he will forgive those who have sinned against him. If I'm trusting God, depending on him in prayer and understanding how much I have been forgiven by Jesus, well, then I just might go and do likewise. I might just find birth in my heart a capacity to forgive those who have sinned against me because I'm beginning to understand how much I've been forgiven by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Faith, prayer, forgiveness. Antitheses of self-justifying self-righteousness. And, and, and I think if, if, we, if we think about this just a little bit more, we will see that in the cultivation of those habits of the heart, what we'll see is that that's just living out the first and second great commandment, right? Faith and prayer, it's relationship to the Lord. Forgiving others, loving your neighbor as yourself from the heart. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. We may still find ourselves doing lots of religious activities then. 
But when we rely on him for the power, the productivity will be vastly different. So if you need to repent of formalism this morning, friends, let's do that. Let's turn our backs as we leave this sanctuary on the mindset of service that assumes that we're doing God some sort of cosmic favor. Right? In Christian service, we're called upon to serve in the strength that God supplies to depend on him so that even as we do what he calls us to, we're resourced and supplied by him. He's made much of, not us. As one example, think about how you might have your daily devotional tomorrow morning. There's different ways to go to the word and prayer in our personal devotional lives, right? There is the, uh, it's, I have a, an item on my to-do list. The item on my to-do list says read X number of chapters and pray for X number of minutes. And when I do, I'll cross it off my to-do list, perhaps put the notch in my belt and move on about my day. That's one way to go to the word and to go to prayer. Here's another way. What if you attacked the word tomorrow morning or tonight or this afternoon the way a starving man would attack a delicious piece of filet mignon if that was presented before him. Same activity, very different disposition of the heart. Let us, con- let us consider what it would look like in our own lives to practice spiritual disciplines, to pursue religious activities as those who are desperate to depend on them, not as those who are offering favors and sort of cosmic back-scratching to God. It makes all the difference in the world. Well, Walt's going to come and lead us in a time of responding to this message, and I just want to encourage you to, to respond now as the Spirit is prompting you. If you need to repent, repent. Confess. If you need to do that, if you need to pray with someone, pray with someone. Perhaps it would be encouraging to meditate for a few moments on the Lamb in Revelation 5, passing under the sword of God's justice to restore you back to the Father's family. Whatever the Spirit leads you to do, feel free to continue doing that, even as others join Walt in singing.